Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is sponsored by my Lit Daily Online Yoga Classes. This is an exclusive pass into my personal practice and program that I created from experience as a physical therapist and 20 years developing my Lit Yoga methodology. There is a different class with me every day, including special monthly live streams, so you can feel your most lit up anytime and anywhere. Get a three-day free trial today by going to movementbylara.com and clicking daily classes. Let's get moving. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a movement by Laura podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Wednesday Q&A, so let's get right to it. You ask me questions and I answer. The first question I have from Enabled Collective. Oh, it's not even a question. Have an amazing day, Laura Hyman. You are a blessing to all. Wishing you happiness. Wow, that is so sweet of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Enabled Collective. That is a beautiful sentiment. I really appreciate that. Okay, Liza A-N-Z. She asked, I've been cued to push up between the shoulder blades. Do you agree? Okay, well, pushing up between the shoulder blades is is a cue to activate the serratus anterior. The serratus anterior I've talked about, it has its own episodes, so check that out. But serratus anterior, its job is to protract the scapula, but it's also isometrically supposed to um, hold the scapula in neutral on the rib cage or just to glide along the rib cage when it's not in neutral necessarily. But in weight bearing, we want to keep the scapula on the ribs via the serratus anterior, holding it there. What people will do when the serratus is not ready to activate, kind of like, you know, not, it's a little lazy, is they'll cue you to push up, like she's saying, push up between the shoulder blades. There's nothing wrong with that. I call that serratus puffs. So that's a way of engaging the serratus, getting it to contract concentrically so that you are aware of where it is and and it's aware of what it's supposed to be doing. And then after you've done that, so yes, in answer to your question, there's nothing wrong with that. I would always ask like, what is the reason? If If you're telling somebody to push up between the shoulder blades and hold it there as a way of performing plank, I would say, I don't agree with that. I would use it as a movement 
to elicit the serratus anterior contraction to then have the serratus anterior isometrically hold the scapula on the rib cage without being pushed up between the shoulder blades. So I would I would ask the person, oh, why are we doing that? Because what happens is people who study about the body, and I'm a little biased. I have put in a lot of years of work. I've gotten a, mat, a graduate degree in physical therapy. I've gotten a postgraduate degree. So, and then I've, I spend many days working with people. So I have had the experience and the academic background to really understand the body well. And what I see is that people want to understand the body, which is, and they'll study it, but they don't have the the total knowledge that, uh, and then they'll kind of pick it apart. So that's that's an idea of like picking apart something that is accurate sometimes, but is not accurate all the time. So it's an understanding that serratus anterior is an important muscle, and it's a muscle when it concentrically contracts, protracts the scapula. But that is not the position we want to hold it in all the time. So you have to tease out what the purpose is. I hope that helped you. So Kristen Kaigo Yoga asked me, what are your thoughts on triangle? So triangle pose, personally, it was one of these that I used to do every single class. It was just so fundamentally important for me. I did so if you had talked to me 25 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I was doing triangle in every class. I thought, oh, this is great. It balances out working on the hamstrings, it's working on the side body, opening in the chest a little bit. Now I never practice it. <laughs> so this is what I do is I explore poses that and I say, hmm, what is the what is the added value and what are the potential risk? And if what are we saying is the added value or the pros for triangle, if it, if we're saying it's to open up the adductors and the hamstrings and to open up the side body, there are other ways I can do that without the possibility, the probability in my mind of doing some things that are not so great, which is pull on the SI joint of the top, um, so if I had my left foot forward in triangle and my right hip is the top hip, it can really put a load on that right SI joint. Uh, it, it feels the left knee tends to hyperextend or kind of hang out. There are people that love triangle. So I don't want to take it away from you. I just find like, hmm, I don't know. I'm not loving it. I'm not loving it. I haven't been loving it for a while. So no, I don't practice it. So is there a is there a quote unquote good way of doing it? Because I know there's ton, tons of people ask, ask me this. Is there a good way of doing it? I don't like to classify good and bad movement. What I will always ask is what is what is the value of this pose? And so the value so the value of down dog, for instance, is super symmetrical. Both hands, both feet. You have you form an apex. You're getting inversion. You're getting weight bearing in the hands. You're getting core integration. Um, you're opening up the entire posterior chain because when you form an apex at the pelvis with the legs and the um, torso on the other ends, you're you're pulling on the tissue across the back. So you're getting into the hamstrings that way. You're getting into the back fascia, all the while still having a lot of um, support, integrated core. So that like down dog, amazing. 
triangle, you, you're taking um, one of your arms and one of your legs out of the picture and asymmetrically loading. And some people will say, oh, well, you should asymmetrically load. Isn't that functional? Well, yeah, okay, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's functional, but what I'm more, imp- I, I just don't think that there's, why are we taking people who are probably not as well-equipped to handle these things and putting them in a pose that is in itself not truly that functional? When I could find some another pose that probably has more functionality to it and m- more benefit to it. But listen, this is my opinion. Take it or leave it. What I will tell you is I've been teaching and practicing for 25 years. I'm 50 years old. My body feels good. So I'm going to keep doing what I am doing because I think it's working. So that's what I think. Like feel what works for you. Does it feel good if you're in triangle? I don't know. Doesn't feel good for me that that much. Okay, so let's see. Scully, Scully 5 says, is it possible for a runner to loosen their hips ever? Well, this brings up a really good question. What is the purpose of loosening the hips? I know what you mean by that because I'm asked this a lot. Runners get incredibly contracted and <clears throat> there's nothing sadder slash funnier, <laughs> funnier, I'm not meaning to laugh at a runner, but because I was a runner for many years, by the way, but a runner that's running down the road looking like the, that you're kind of like this cashew shape and the arms are barely moving and it, everything looks very flexed and it just doesn't look that comfortable to be like that. And so I think when somebody says, are you trying to loosen your hips? It's just this feeling of after you've been running, the front body has gotten shortened and shortened and shortened. And so how do you find that space that you're looking for? And I'll say, yes, it is possible. For, it's Anybody can loosen or find um, more mobility is probably the word we want to we use here. When you are moving in a run in a direction of running just like in a direction of walking it's a repetitive activity and the movement of the hip is fairly limited for the um in terms of the entire range that the hip is able to actually do so the hip joint is a ball and socket joint so imagine a ball and you're just rolling the ball it's like if you had a tennis ball under your hand and you just roll it forward and back forward and back and you don't spin it. You don't go side to side. You just go forward and back with it. So there is naturally going to be some restriction that occurs in the other directions that this ball could go if you don't take it there. So the run to loosen, quote, your hips, you need to move and mobilize your hips in a variety of directions. So do some side lunges. I have some runners flows and stuff like that. In fact, I have an athletic series, an athlete series up on my lit daily, and it specifically is targeting all the different movement patterns that athletes uh, tend to kind of maybe overdo. Um, and it's it's supposed to be a remedy for that. So check that out on my lit daily uh, movementbylara.com. You can check it out. Next question. <sighs> This is a, people are asking, telling me they love me. Thank you. I love you too. <laughs> See, I told you, I try and look at these in real time so I don't prepare and I am off the cuff. Okay, here we go. Proper way, this is Rowena Kosher, proper way to walk up multiple flights of stairs, especially if double stepping 
In other words, what's the hip and pelvis position? Great question, Rowena. So what I would say is if you're going upstairs, you're going to be, you're in a position to really use your glutes well, driving that hip into extension. So if I were at the bottom of the stairs and I stepped up with my left foot, I would be working my right glute to push off. And then I'll step up on the right foot and it's the left glute. So it is beneficial to have a neutral pelvis. You can be flexed at the hips a little bit and that can almost bias you when you flex forward a little bit to get even more extension when you drive that bottom leg. Um, So I would do that with the neutral pelvis, just hinge at the hips. And you don't have to, you don't necessarily have to be totally upright. What I often do, if you, that's, that's if you're really trying to like go up those steps fast. For people who are relearning, I don't say relearning, but yeah, kind of relearning because I've had so many of these people in the last number of years learning how to use their glutes when they're walking upstairs. I have them go up the stairs like he, like she is a queen with a crown on her head. And trying to, you want that crown to be stable and yours and the neutral spine and neutral pelvis. And you're just like working that glute. And with that person whose glutes have been snoozing or have been, has been in a lot of anterior tilt, being more vertical and going slower is more beneficial. But if you are really comfortable going up and down the stairs, you don't live in a kind of anterior tilted pelvis and your glutes are firing pretty well already then I would say you don't, you can tilt a little bit, but tilt hinge from the hips and then you can go up faster and faster if you're double stepping like you're, like you're talking about here. So Mac, Miura, I'm sorry, I really can't read all the, okay, here we go. Miura Tyree, sorry, I just botched that. Can we do cat-cow movement while we are in a wide angle standing forward fold? Sure. That's totally fine Um, because the cat and cow there will mostly come in the thoracic spine and there will be a minimal amount in your lumbar spine. There's nothing wrong with lumbar flexion per se. It is a movement we want. It actually, there's a gapping action in the, uh, a gapping of the joints so that the space between say L1 and L2, L2 and L3, all, all the five lumbar vertebrae, we can get a little gapping with flexion. And that's why it feels so delightful. The problem is if that is the choice that you make when you're bending over, if you bend from your back. Um, I was just working with somebody today privately and she was very quick on the uptake. But what I do is I say, can you pick something up off the floor? And I see where is the first impulse for to move. And for many people, it's the head drops down. And then other people, the back rounds first. And then some people is it's just a pure tip at the pelvis. And those aren't any of the things that I actually am looking for, for the optimal hinge at the hips, because I want the hips to be moving and everything else to be quite rigid. So in for wide angle forward fold, would everybody be able to do that cat cow action? No. What I would tell somebody if they were working on it is make sure that the spine is fully extended before you start even trying to mobilize it. Because mobilizing it when your spine is already starting in a flex position won't feel good because you'll just move where you can. And so I would say, can you get your spine really lengthened? That might require the knees to be bent and then mobilize the spine that way. 
with the hands on the floor, that action of cat-cow is the way to prepare for a press um, straddle handstand, in fact. So you want to be able to do that cat-cow. It's a small movement and it's a controlled movement. So it's a movement that's okay to do, but you might have to bring hands under your blocks. You might have to bend your knees because we want the spine um, extended long, not rounded at all when you are in that starting place. Okay, so I'm going to take one more question here. This is from Hansa A&G. Where is the best spot to place hands for Chaturanga pose? Well, what, what, what? The, if I could have money for every time I answer this question, oh my goodness, I would be opening up another animal shelter. Um, no, this is this is a fascinating question because many people, they, people teach this differently. So I'm going to tell you my interpretation from a physical therapy lens and understanding the body and understanding centration of the joints and understanding the co-contracted trunk. And that when all of that, it is in place, the best place for your hands is right under the shoulders. So if you were to, going into Chaturanga, it's a pose, it's also a transition. So what I would say is stand up, hinge forward and bring your hands in front of your feet and have them on the floor. Have your shoulders over your wrist and step back into plank without moving that position. So your shoulders are over your wrist then you will lower into chaturanga from that position. In my opinion, an ideal position is that you once you place your hands down to, um, on the floor, you won't have to move your hands anymore. You won't have to rearrange. You won't have to shift forward. None of that. Make it easy for yourself. And you're, you're going to be set up that your shoulder, the glenohumeral joint, the uh, ball and socket joint of the shoulder will be able to stay uh, centrated, centered, as opposed to dipping down toward the floor. People talk about elbow over wrist. That is just, uh, it, it's not necessary. I can tell you that it's not necessary. I have done thousands of chaturangas and I feel great. It's never hurt my shoulder. It's never hurt my elbow. So it's not about the elbow. <laughs> okay. Let me be clear. It's not about the elbow. What it's about is how well you hold proximally, which is closer to the body. So that's going to be at the shoulder girdle, where your scapula is, where the humeral head is, and how the scapula is being held onto the back via the serratus anterior, some rhomboids, some middle trapezius, and some lower trapezius. And then the rotator cuff is holding that shoulder in place. So I'm naming these muscles just so you're aware that's multiple muscles acting on the joint of the shoulder to hold it stable. And then the external obliques and the transverse abdominals, all of that, the glutes are all contributing to a very happy and sustainable chaturanga. So the position of your hands is under your shoulders. You place the hands down, they're in front of your feet, and then you walk back so that your shoulders are over your wrist, and then you never have to change that. You simply bend the elbows and go straight down. What is challenging is that it's hard, people. It's hard. Uh, shifting forward is way easier, but I will tell you, it's a really nice way of shredding your rotator cuff. So don't do it. But it's way easier because you're putting the stress on your shoulders and you're not putting the demand on your core. So you're, you're actually biomechanically stressing out the shoulders, which 
you want to be instead activating to help um, with the rest of the core muscles to help stabilize uh, the shoulders. So let me know what you think about that answer. I hope that helps you. As always, lots of hugs from me to you. If you want to ask me a question, you can ask me on my Instagram page or you can ask me by emailing me at Lara, L-A-R-A, there's no you, Lara at movementbylara.com. Hugs from me to you. Thank you so much. 